Good morning again. If you're visiting, my name is Peter. I get to serve on the team of elders that leads the church, and I'm tasked by them to serve as the lead pastor, which means I direct our staff and I preach the word of God. So catching us up, we're in week four of our story of the Bible series that we're doing alongside Mosaic Church in Austin. Uh, We, uh, in our culture, and really any culture that has been touched by the Bible in history, it's all too common to retain a level of familiarity with some of the stories of the Bible, and yet to, in large part, overlook the story of the Bible. So we are going into, from Genesis to Revelation, the basic story of the Bible. We're doing it in 11 weeks, so there's 66 books in the Bible. You can pretty much tell that we're not going to get through every book. But we're spending four weeks here in Genesis. The first three weeks we spent on the first three chapters of Genesis, going from the topic of creation right to the topic, abruptly, of the catastrophe of human sin and rebellion. Today we're jumping to Genesis chapter 12, tackling the topic of calling. As the, the man Abram, the artist also known as Abraham, enters the scene of our story. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet with me as we read God's word. We stand to honor God's word, which stands above us. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 4. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. The word of the Lord. Y'all can be seated as we pray together. Jesus, please add a supernatural blessing to the reading of your word. We need you. Whether we know it or not, we need you. We, We need you to give us ears to hear and even listen and hearts to obey And give us minds to keep it that simple by your Holy Spirit. Listening and obeying and the wonderful adventure that that can be for us, your people. Amen. Amen. Before we dig deeper into these four verses from Genesis 12, I want to catch us up with the story of the Bible so far. So we covered creation, how... God in his wisdom and his beauty and his delight and his pleasure created us to share in all of that. In the garden he created for us, the garden of pleasure and delight, which is what Eden means. And that was somewhat of a short-lived pleasure and delight in the garden because Jesus said, Elohim God, in the beginning, He told us, go and spread this delight, spread this glory, spread this garden, literally to fill the whole earth. Subdue it under my pleasure and my delight. And we said, well, okay, we'll think about it. And we didn't. 
we joined the questioning of the enemy and we entered into the catastrophe of human sin where we basically agreed with the devil that maybe God's holding out on us. Maybe God doesn't want what's best for me. Maybe God isn't good. And we agreed with that awful idea and brought upon ourselves awful behavior. And from that point on in human history is the sin and destruction that we see and we read about and we tweet about. The human sin that has encompassed all cultures, all languages since this point in Genesis 3. I can only imagine what God's angels must be thinking when they see what's happened with humanity. They see humans spreading sin around like a virus that's worse than the zombie apocalypse. They watch humans killing, raping, lying, betraying, and celebrating all of that as progress. And they must be thinking, God, so remember how you said that like when they ate of that fruit, like you were going to kill them and stuff? That on this day that you eat it, you'll surely die. So why didn't you annihilate them yet? Why, why do they keep, you know, they spiritually die, and then there's this digressive physical death. Like, what's that all about? I can only imagine that because what we see in human history and all of the things that we boast about is pretty bad. And I say that to say that no one can accuse God rightly of having a quick temper. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. And that's really human history. That's me catching you up with Genesis 4 through Genesis 11. God keeps giving us chances to obey him. We keep forfeiting those chances and getting worse. By the time you get to Genesis 6, it says that the human beings thought of only evil all the time. And those, br- those tiny little bleak moments of doing good things and thinking good things, do we give God the credit for that? No. We blame it on ourselves. And so God says, I want to do a little reboot of humanity. And in Genesis 6 and 7, he wants to start over. He wants to purify the earth through a flood and start over through eight people in Noah's family. And even after that, the descendants that come from Noah and his family continue to reject God's plan to fill the earth with his goodness. Genesis 11, then they said... Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. So in context with what God called us to, lest we obey God to spread, to spread his goodness, to receive his goodness and to spread that everywhere. Let's do something else for ourselves and keep it to ourselves. And God could have totally wiped out humanity at that point too. We were united in our defiance to God is the only unity humanity really ever perfectly saw. And God said, I could wipe it out, but I'm just going to scatter them instead around the face of the earth so that they will fill the earth one way or another And that moment, from that moment of scattering, we see all of the separated languages and ethnicities of the world. Because it's better for us to be distinctly far from God, relatively, and within the reach of his redemptive calling, 
than for us to be totally, completely unified with his enemy in one place. And that's just what we're going to cover today. God's calling. The relentlessly merciful God. The steadfast, abounding in love and mercy God that calls this man Abram, this pagan man, in a dark place, calls him out of darkness, enmity, and separation, and into a great promise. A promise that we can be children of. That we can inherit through faith. The same faith that Abraham had. So as we look through our passage... We're going to go through these four verses in order. I have three ideas that we'll cover that are relevant to this. So ditching familiarity, bestowing renown, and then finally, simple obedience. Now, as you'll see, these three ideas play out in these four verses of our our chapter 12. They also play out in all of the Bible. And if you dare to allow God to show you, you'll see how these ideas play out in your own life as well. So here we go. First, ditching familiarity. It's easy to lose sight of the fact that the people in the Bible are real people and relate painfully close to some of the things we do and think. When God scattered these people who were rising up against him, He scattered him to all the land. Abraham's family, his father Terah, his family, they kind of wandered around the Middle East and settled in modern-day Iraq, in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans, which, by the way, has been uncovered recently. And Abraham's family, Abram's family, was marked by tragedy. He was one of three sons, Nahor and Haran, his brothers. And we know from the previous chapter that his brother Haran died in the arms of his father, Terah. And we don't know if the, the place that we see, it says Abram left the, the land of Haran. We don't know if it was named that land because Abram's father, being so marked by this grief and this tragedy, decided to name the land after the son that he grieved. But we know that Abram was a man of grief. He was defined by it. He was named by this grief. And on top of that, his own name, was another fundamental sign of his disillusionment and disappointment in his life. His name, Abram, meant exalted father. And we know from our text that he was 75 years old without being a father. So I can only imagine the people who were throwing shade at him his whole life. The older he got, the more his name must have felt like it was kind of like a mocking tone when people would say his own name. And to make it seemingly worse, when God calls him out and gives him this greater promise that's just almost like a hyperbole, like, yeah, you're going to do what? Make my descendants as much as the sand of the sea? God changed his very name, which was, was probably already a source of great pain for him, from Abram to Abraham, which doesn't just mean exalted father. It means the father of multitudes. And this name change happened with decades more of waiting on this promise before he could become a father. So in this place of disillusionment, in this place of disappointment and depression, people being named by their grief, God speaks. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country your kindred, your father's house to the land that I will show you. 
He didn't say to this land. Here, I'll show you before you go. Look it up on Google Maps. I'll explain it. I got pictures for you. And then you can decide whether or not you're going to go. He didn't even show him in any sort of way. He says, go from this land to a land that I will show you. Notice how it's very specific about what Abram's to leave behind, but very unspecific comparatively with what he is to step into. And nonetheless, a very simple command, go. And Abram does. He says, you need to ditch what is familiar to you. You need to leave behind kindred, your father's house, the things that you define yourself by, leave that all behind and go someplace where I'm going to show you, but I haven't shown you yet, and I'm still expecting your obedience right now. Go. Leave behind that which is familiar to you, that which you're accustomed to, perhaps the grief that you define yourself by. Leave it behind because God knew that Abram would not have the capacity to connect with the great promise that he had for him if he didn't first disconnect from what he was familiar with. Now this theme of God stepping into people's lives and wrecking lives as they know it in order to give them a way better, unwasted, more glorious life, this is a theme all throughout the Bible. Think about James and John, these two fishermen that were, that were relatively successful fishermen, we don't know, for their dad Zebedee. They had their own boat. And Jesus comes up to them and he says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. What did they do? It says immediately they left their nets. They left their kindred in essence. They left behind what was familiar to them. They left behind their dad's boat. I assume they probably anchored it in. But they immediately left now, they could have said to Jesus, oh, Jesus, you were looking for like unstable people that would just leave behind everything all at once, but we're pretty stable people. We're not the leave everything behind and leave immediately type of guys. You got the wrong guys. We're fishermen. You know, this is who, this is who we are. This is what we do. No, they left. Jesus defined who they are based on how he was calling him into something else, and they obeyed. If you won't let God redefine you, you won't see his blessing. You'll just be stuck with your best effort to bless yourself, to make a name for yourself. And plus, he doesn't technically redefine you. He defines and restores unto you that which you've always been meant to be in the first place before you took on the burden upon yourself to try to define yourself, your dreams, your goals, your life. If you won't let God speak into that place of preeminence, you'll be stuck with the best you've got for yourself, which is comparatively poor. This is why it's absurd when someone says something like, I hear this all the time, man, I don't want to follow Jesus because I want to be my own person. You know, I don't want his lordship kind of ruling over me and stuff and putting a, a damper on who I'm supposed to be. I want to fly high and whatever we say in our culture. Well, the irony is you can't, be who you really are without Jesus restoring you 
to what he created you to be and his restorative voice of affirmation, defining and prophetically calling out who you are. Hashtag you do you isn't really even possible without the Holy Spirit coming inside you and helping you to get outside of yourself and the things and the sins and the the depression, the things that weigh you down that you think are you but are not you. We need help. We need God to define us, to give us our true, original, unique, transcendent identity of who we are. Jesus says, behold, I make all things new. We need that voice in our lives very practically. When I was growing up thinking I knew God, but rejecting him with my life, I defined myself very differently before I was born again through a campus ministry in high school. And I thought it was my burden, that crippling burden of of self-definition. I thought it was my burden to define myself, my life, my calling, my dreams. That's what my second grade teacher told me. You can be anything you want to be. And implicitly, she was telling me, you're supposed to define that all on your own. That's that burden that we carry in America that's just not right. And so I... here's what I define myself. I was funny. I was fun. I'm a nice guy. I'm a good guy even. Of course, this is that thing, that convenient thing in our culture. How do we define good? Well, we get to define that too. I defined what good meant, my own subjective reality of good. And how did I do that? I found worse people. (laughs) I found baseball players on my team. Oh man, I'm a good guy. I'm fun. Everyone wants to be like me. It felt good, except one person that disagreed with me was me and God, my own insecurity, my own struggles. And I was invited to this Bible study and God made me new and made me born again. One of the things is I I saw that I'm not quite as good as I thought I was, but I'm way more loved. And Jesus transformed me. And a lot of those other things didn't necessarily change, but they were restored. So now that these things... This, this fun thing, I can be free to actually be that person who God always intended me to be, but not leverage to garner other people to follow me and like me, but to share in something way greater than me. Instead of using these things, how I define myself to indulge in my own selfishness, I can evangelize people to not to me, but to the kingdom of God, the same place that I was brought into the same movement he's called me to when he told me to leave behind what I'm familiar with and comfortable with. If you can't ditch familiarity, you cannot respond to his calling. This is true for your individual life as much as it's true for the church at large. I remember a few months ago, Pastor Morgan from Mosaic was here and he talked about the unique power and potential of the gospel-centered culture shaping that can happen in diverse churches like ours. You know, perhaps God isn't pleased with the way we defined, define things all on our own. When we define and limit church explicitly or implicitly to being things that <clears throat> have to grow or not grow, dependent, dictated by my own comforts, my own current political uh, opinions, 
my own musical preferences. Maybe, just maybe, this Jewish man who grew and lived a perfect life in the Middle East 2,000 years ago and died on the cross to purchase for himself a people from every tribe and nation just has this idea that his blood is big enough and powerful enough to call forth people to himself that aren't just white church, black church, brown church, church as we know it, but something way bigger than what I'm familiar with. And by faith, I can see something bigger if I ditch all that. Now, Morgan was pretty cutting when he said, maybe you can remain in the comfort of a homogenous setting. And maybe it's because God's calling you to that. But in many ways, you'll never know because you won't likely be challenged in that environment the way God's calling you to be challenged. Now, there is such a thing as sanctified discomfort. I say this all the time. You can't learn a new language with what I, without what I call la santa presión, the holy pressure to grow, to leave behind maybe not everything that is familiar, but to leave behind practically your allegiance to the things that are familiar over your allegiance to the God that calls you out of them all the time. Listen to his voice. Letting go of what's familiar is often scary. Enduring the pain of unfamiliar ground is a risk that involves all sorts of traps. But let me paint a bleak picture for you. What if you weren't to face any traps whatsoever? What if you were to obtain all that you want in life? What if you were able to do this without ever having to ditch your familiarity, without ever having to step out of your comfort zone and get out of the box? What if you were able to accomplish your life goals and to garner the American dream? Now here's the bleak part. What if you were able to do that only to realize too late that you settled for something less than what God has for you? the adventure that he's created you for, the redemptive purpose that he has preordained for your life. Only to realize it too late before you can trade up. God is calling us to be more than just comfortable and tame, but to be world changers. And he says, move, go, I don't have all the answers for you, but I got a better promise for you. He doesn't fully paint the picture of where Abraham's to go, but he does better than that. He gives, them, gives him a promise of a greater name. He gives him a promise that's better than his current existence. Number two, bestowing renown. Bestowing renown. You know, every generation in history has chased after a name for themselves, chased after renown, aimed to make themselves great. And I I realize this might be hard to relate to, but people in olden times used to be people that tried to get other people to like them and went out of their way to get other people to admire them, to like them, to like their posts and to repost and retweet, in fact. And I'm being facetious because this is, way too painfully easy to relate to. 
But since the beginning of time, there's always been a fundamental difference between us chasing renown for ourselves versus renown in a name being bestowed on us by someone greater than us. It's always been the thing. Verse two, God says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Verse three, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now that overemphasis is to underline clear sentence syntax that we need to understand. That God is the subject of these sentences and he is the actor in history. He's the one that bestows renown. He's the one that defines and makes people into things. He's the one who leads us. But since the beginning here, we, we've tried to take that role into ourselves. The, chapter 11, let us, in contrast, let, let us make a great name for ourselves. Let, let us boast in ourselves and reject what God would try to bestow on us Let us make a name for ourselves. Now you put a beat to that, and it sounds like pretty much every Grammy-nominated song from the last decade. Let us make a name for ourselves. There's an infinite difference between God making my name great and me working to realize my dreams, to make my name great, to chase after my aspirations. And the great danger is not that if I fail to do all that, but if, if I succeed. In fact, when I look back on my story, even the last 15 years of doing ministry, I often see, even with my selfish aspirations in the middle of all that, I see God's supreme mercy in the many moments where I have failed to accomplish my dreams. God wants to rescue you from your dreams, to call you into his. We're not made to carry the burden of making a name for ourselves, to realize our dreams on our own. We're meant to be swept into a greater dream, a greater purpose, a greater adventure to be bestowed on us. Practically, this means, practically, that I need God, and I need his people to tell me who I am, to call me into something greater, and to let me know if there's some baggage that's going to make it difficult for me to get there. I need that in my life. No one is self-aware. We're not supposed to be self-aware. We're not supposed to just see perfectly ourselves and then navigate from where we are to where God's leading us. He doesn't lead us. He doesn't leave us to that. He gives us other people that can help us. So often the people that we get offended for doing what God has called them to do in our lives. Oh, you're being judgmental. Yes, God has judged that you are not to be left to yourself as you are, but that you can be growing in him and not stuck where you are. God has given us people so that we don't have to be self-aware. In fact, the people I've seen that have been most self-aware in their life are the people who realize they're not self-aware 
and therefore make it a habit to get other people to help speak into their lives. Define them and say, what is God saying about me? How, how can I grow in that? And the burden's not on us. It was about, Jessica, I'm going to pick on you a little bit. It was about two months ago after church, and I'm standing in the lobby, and Jessica lovingly and clearly let me know that I had a booger hanging from my nose. And many of y'all have been here before where someone wasn't loving enough to tell you. You need to forgive those people. But this moment is such a great metaphor about one of the things that the gathering of the church of the living God is supposed to be. That we can't get if we don't gather, whether it's on Sundays or throughout the week in growth groups. Because you can go and find your favorite podcast preacher. And you can go and find your best Spotify worship mix and try to be super encouraged. And maybe that's good for encouragement, but it's not good for all that God has called the church to be when we gather together. We are supposed to be in a place where we see the prophetic power of God define and spur on and call us to something greater. Sometimes when it really feels encouraging and sometimes when it feels discouraging, either way we're growing, whether it's growing joy or growing pain, it's prophetic. And God's saying, this is who you are. You defined yourself with that which was comfortable when your own self-protection, but I've got healing for you. I've got power for you. I've got prophetic unity for what I'm calling you to that you can have power to walk in, in definition and identity. And in light of the mirrors that I've placed in your life to tell you who you are. And in light of what I've called you to be, I've also given you people who can show you comparatively when you've got boogers in your attitude and your own aspirations. And don't curse me for blessing you. This is one of the reasons why we're met to gather. Because when we get together and we, we can speak in this prophetic voice over one another, we can be so blessed, not just that I come to the gathering so that I can be built up, so that I can give of my gift, that God has given me a prophetic edge to my gift, which is different than yours, meaning that I know when I come to this place that I've got something to say. I've got something to, to speak, to spur someone else on, because I know that God has, has called me to be so blessed that like Psalm 23, that my cup overflows, and I am strategically ready to spill out his affirmation on my brothers and my sisters so that the church of God becomes so much like the garden was supposed to be, but better. That we're the garden of delight. That even in our flaws, the blood of Christ speaks a better prophetic word so that we speak into each other, calling us out of something that's familiar into something that's glorious. Ditching familiarity, bestowing Renowned through the church. Finally, we see simple obedience. Now you'll see here, simple is not easy. But it is simple. <laughs> Don't add complication to what's difficult. Life was meant to be beautifully and powerfully simple when we walk with God. It's complicated because of our sin but based on what Jesus did and the Holy Spirit that he sent, that we could walk with him, it can be as simple as listen and obey. Verse 4, so Abraham went as the Lord had told him. 
Abraham, Abraham, Abraham heard God's voice, a God that he didn't previously know. He was anything but familiar with this voice. Abram was a moon worshiper. He didn't quite know this voice. It wasn't a comfortable voice to him, but he obeyed. And don't say for a minute, oh, this was simpler times. You know, Abram didn't have an iPhone or a car that needs fixing. No, it wasn't simpler times. It was about the same complications of sin that we have. And he obeyed. So Abram went. Three simple words. If you obey, if you obey what God tells you to do, it doesn't require a long explanation. Have you ever noticed that the long explanations come from our disobedience? (laughs) Like we think that explaining it's going to make disobedience sound like something else. We all do this. My kids do this. I'll go to my kids and be like, all right, did I, did you do what I told you to do? And it's either, you know, yes or no questions with kids always garner yes or explanation responses, right? Did you do what I told you to do? Yes. Or did you do what I told you to do? Well, you see, Alma, no, no, don't worry about her. Did you do what I told you to do? We complicate things. God wants it to be simple. Verse, Hebrews 11, the, the writer of Hebrews says this about Abram. By faith, Abram, Abraham, obeyed when he was called to go out of the place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Simple obedience. This was a defining moment for Abram, and it was a defining moment in the story of the Bible and all of history. And there are defining moments in your life where onlookers could say, what are you doing, Abram? Some weird voice calls that you eating those mushrooms again. This is weird. What are you doing? And sometimes the stakes are so high and the risks are so great in your life that there's no measured, there's no reasonable explanation for you obeying. It, it's to onlookers, there are these defining moments in your life where to them it's either foolish or you're full of faith and there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of middle ground. Because God is calling you clearly to go and follow him. Simply, difficultly, impossibly without his help. But in these moments, the question is, will you step out and will you obey? Even if God doesn't fully paint the picture for you of exactly what it's going to look like and exactly what the schedule is going to be, will you step out now and obey him? Victory Weekend is on April 6th. Uh, Any of these next few examples I give you, feel free to get your phone out and sign up now. Victory Weekend's April 6th. Maybe you've heard the stories of people who've been transformed by it. But you've also heard it's like a whole day. And there's some activities that are a little different. We could explain to you just what you have to expect. And, And good, look, we could do the best we can. But you could also just sign up without getting any of those explanations first. If God, the Holy Spirit, is telling you, you need to sign up for Victory Weekend. Or maybe the student conference. We have a whole bunch of students signed up for our student conference. It starts on Friday. 
Every Nation campus has a conference up in Austin. And if you're a student in here and you're not signed up, why? If you say it's because of a money thing, well, we've already pushed that to the side. Talk to one of our leaders. Great. It could be that simple. But what if it's other things? What if it's, well, I, I don't do as good in larger settings like that. Or, uh, you know, I'm not super into conference. I'm not like a conference person. Please hear me. What if you're just supposed to go and let God tell you what kind of person you are? Let him speak a better word over your life. Just take the risk. It's not a stupid risk. It's a faith risk that could sound stupid right now, but just sign up. Or going to a growth group. What if you get around people that are pretty much like you and have the capacity to hurt others? Or they have the capacity to speak God's word over you and to help you and to help you get unharnessed from all the things that were holding you back. Simple obedience. Now for Abram, it was simple obedience. And real quickly, I want to point out one last thing in this that I think could have been a hindrance if it weren't for the providence of God. Verse 4, Abram went as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Now, I could be reading into this too much, and so I'll submit that, because the writer of Hebrews didn't think this was a big problem. But I think clearly it says in verse 1, leave behind your father's house and your kindred and your familiar things. And then it says Lot went with him, which is part of that, all that stuff in verse 1. Maybe he felt the responsibility for his dead brother's son. And he, he felt like he needed to do this to help his son and take him with him. And whether I'm right or wrong about what I'm seeing here, I do know this. That all of us so often sin, not by blatantly rebelling against God sometimes... It's by taking upon ourselves responsibilities that he has not called us to. That his voice has not said, you need to do this. We're not obeying the voice of peace. We're obeying our own guilt. As we read in Genesis, Abram's nephew Lot was not a follower of God. He almost seemed to be a hindrance if it weren't for God's power and grace over his life. Almost a hindrance to hold Abram back from the promise. And that's often like us. We, we think that God needs us to care for someone else. As if God isn't God. And that he needs us so we go outside the voice of what he's calling us to. And it threatens to hinder our calling. And ironically, it threatens to prevent us from blessing, receiving the blessing that God has for us. And blessing others like them anyway. Now, to be clear, regardless of all that and what Lot was supposed to be in this, Jesus will call you to do things that are beyond your capacity and to sacrificially bless others who are messed up like we are. He will call you to do that, but all I'm doing is challenging you to listen to his voice, his burdens, because he will call you to do things that are hard, but sometimes we can codependently, like we're, we need to be needed instead of being at peace. Now, if you feel weariness, maybe, maybe you're in this situation where you've already, it's kind of too late for you. You already put on some responsibilities on yourself. Please, please look at me as I'm drawing to a close here. 
Jesus is not telling you, go figure out all that burden stuff and get that all straightened out and then come back to me. Jesus is saying, maybe you've rebelled against me. Simple disobedience. Maybe you've taken on responsibilities that I didn't call you to. But bring all of that mess to me, is what Jesus says. Bring it to the altar. He says, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and learn of me, for I am meek and humble. He says, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So do you have the the burdens of sin and consequences, the burdens of, of false burdens on you? Bring it to Jesus. Because, spoiler alert, Abram did not end up achieving the calling of God on his own. His, His own descendants took it upon themselves, false burdens and even blatant rebellion. And yet the blessing of Abraham remained intact. That might seem strange to you, but it remained intact because of simple obedience. Not the obedience of Abraham, Abraham, and not your obedience or mine, but because of the obedience of Jesus Christ, born in the lineage of Abraham, but not with the seed of sin of Adam and Abraham. He was born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit. The promise of the lineage of Abraham is fulfilled in this Christ child who came and lived a perfect life and traded the blessing of his perfect obedience for the infinite curse of all of our collective disobedience. It took a really, really perfect life to undo billions upon billions of people's disobedience. And not just a perfect life lived, but a perfect life blood sacrificed on the cross. So in conclusion, Abraham was blessed to be a blessing. And he and his descendants squandered that blessing. But Jesus was cursed to be a perfect blessing, which is still available to us today. Only through Christ being cursed on a cross can the promise of Abraham be fulfilled so that all the families of the earth will be blessed. Will you stand to your feet with me, please?